0: Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I encourage you to take out a bulletin that you've got and there's an insert that says families to the glory of God and take your bulletin to the back side of it where I have the text on there, you can follow there with the text on there and if you want to look into a, a Bible yourself, you can take one of the black Bibles if you don't have one and turn to page 151 and if you don't have a Bible or you don't have that version of the Bible and it would be a help to you and you'd use it. We would like to give it to you and so you can take it with you and write your name in it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 is where we're going to begin. In fact, that's going to be the basis of our sermon this morning. I'm going to read that in just a few minutes. I think one of the first shows that I remember my kids being able to sit and watch for the whole program was a little show called... Little Einsteins. Have you ever anyone endured those before? Okay, actually, I have great memories because we'd sit on the bed and we'd watch it, and it was it was a lot of fun. And you, I won't go into the details. Einstein. Well, it was named after we Albert Einstein, the scientist who, well, and a physicist. He knew the glory and the grandeur of this universe, like few of us have. He looked in telescopes and microscopes. He did math equations. He interacted with the greatest minds of the past and of the present. In fact, he was one of the greatest intellectual minds. He was learning things about the universe, like the fact that things that you already know, I'm sure, like light travels at about 5.87 trillion miles a year or that a galaxy which our planet and solar system is part of, the Milky Way, is about 100,000 light years across. That's about 587,000 trillion miles. It is one of a million such galaxies within the optical range of our strongest telescopes, and in our galaxy, there's about 100 billion stars, the sun being one of the modest sizes of one of them, and in the temperature of the star, the sun, is about 600,000 degrees Celsius. It travels about 155 miles per second, and therefore, the sun will make its first orbit around the galaxy, in about 200,000 years. Now, scientists know these things, and they're awed by them, and they conclude, well, let me just put you in the words of a friend of Albert Einstein as he, he pondered Einstein's life in, in his religion or lack of religion. This is what a friend of Einstein, Meisner, Charles Meisner once wrote. I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question that is one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. I mean, this grandness that I just described of the galaxy's size, and just massive. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why he says my friend Einstein had so little use for organized religion although he strikes me as a basically religious man, he must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming him. He had seen so much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing, those preachers, not what they saw in their telescope and the grandness of this God who made the universe. My guess is that Einstein simply felt that religions he had run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. Wow. Do we preachers, and now I want to extend to us, do us Christians, do we see a majesty and speak of a majesty and speak of a goodness and the glory of God? Could could our children, who are growing up and watching mom and dad and watching all the adults in this room, and could our our non-Christian friends, non-believers that are in our lives that we work with or our neighbors, would they say, like Einstein, "Ah, parents, my parents don't seem to have such so much have seen the majesty of God that I even see in my science textbooks. How could it be real?" Do the adults in the church who say they're Christians just don't seem to be talking about the same God that science would see and the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of God? You see, if all these things were true and we believe they are, and we believe that that vast and glorious galaxy and universe and world, we believe that there's a Personal God, who spoke all of that into existence, according to Hebrews 1 3, that he upholds that universe in everything that is made by the word of his power, there ought to be a certain respect and awe. There should be a type of living and a type of dread and a type of fear of not knowing and not loving and not trusting and obeying such a God. And there should be for us a certain talking constantly about this, this God who made us and in fact didn't just show us his artwork in the sky and gave us brains enough to make microscopes and telescopes and all of these things to see small and see big, but he gave us his word to understand it rightly, to understand what he is about. So if that was the case, us. It should be all present in our lives. It should stun us. And we should, our kids should be able to look up at all of this adults. Our neighbors should look and say, they do believe in a God that made the universe. So I want to begin by asking this church this. Are we stunned by the glory and magnificence of our creator and redeeming God? Are we so gripped? talk about this morning is a gripping that doesn't come from just watching something beautiful in in, in nature. I'm ultimately talking about something that is, happens when the Holy Spirit comes in and grips our hearts and so we see things out of this word so amazing in a such amazing way and we have to bring it to our families and to our neighbors and our kids. Are we so gripped by Him that He is has taken over the way we think now and the way we talk and the way we live and the way we pray and the way we read and the way we eat and we, we spend and the way we share. So with all this in mind, I want to bring you to a phrase. I'm not going to spend time that much on this phrase, but it's in your, in your bulletin on, on a phrase in our church covenant because we're going through our church covenant where it says this. We will strive by the aid of the Spirit to maintain family and private devotions. We talked about private devotions last week. That's the 30-30. We will strive to train our children according to the word of God, and we will seek to the salvation of our families and our neighbors. Why? Why would families have devotions? What is devotions? I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time except the end. Why, why family devotions? Why private devotions? Why reading the Bible every day? Why reading together with your family? Why train up your children in the Lord according to this covenant? Why why would you as a member say, we are going to do these things. We're going to commit to do this and encourage each other. We, we promise to do this with one another. And we're going to seek the salvation of our families and our neighbors. Well, to help us see this, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. I'm going to read this. This is one of the most pivotal, most central passages in the Bible, because in this passage, we find some pretty significant claims, even that Jesus made, in which he says in this passage is the greatest commandment. Look with me at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk with them when you sit in your house, not when you just sit, but when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why should we be committed to being a people who strive for family devotions to God and a, com- a devotion to God in general and a commitment to seeking the salvation of our family and neighbors? Because let me give you this answer, and I think it comes right from this passage because the Lord Jesus Christ is your God. He is a covenant making, a covenant keeping, a covenant securing, a people securing Savior God. He's the only God. You have no other God. There is no other God. There is no other, and therefore, we as His people are to be lovingly committed to him with all that we are, all that we do, and all that we have. This morning, I just want to bring you, have them in your notes here. I want to bring to you just three points here. One, the explosive, first I want you to see the glorious explosive truth in verse 4 that must impact everything, central to everything. And then secondly, the all-encompassing command in verse 5 that impacts everything. And then third, the committed actions, not just in verses 5 through 9, but especially in verses 5 through 9, and really all so much of Deuteronomy and the Scriptures that apply the significance of 4 and 5. So I, want, I pray that by God's grace, verse 1, the tr- uh, verse point 1, but the truth of this verse And all that's behind it would grip us as a people. There is nothing more important that your neighbors see that the children in this room or right now in kids in junior church or in nursery would look and see moms and dads, grandpas and grandmas, adopted uncles and aunts, or just adults that they look up to, and they look at them and go, I don't know fully about this God, but if he or she... Leaves them and loves them like that, I need to look into this even more. The first point I want you to see is the explosive truth that we find, the glorious explosive truth in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Hebrew Shema. The Shema is the word for hear in Hebrew. It was a, a phrase that was used over and over again, so much so that Orthodox Jews, religiously orthodox Jews still practice the praying or the reciting of this verse, verses 4 or four and 5, once or twice every day, and more times than that on the Sabbath. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Why would they do this over and over again? Why is this an explosive truth? What I mean by an explosive truth, something that should disrupt everything in our lives, it should disrupt, disrupt your money. It should disrupt your time, your your actions, your attitudes. It should change everything. What does this this phrase say? It's so simple. And in some ways, if you, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and I don't think many of you here are either. Best we know, it says, hear Israel. Listen up, listen Israel. Remember, Israel is... It has been, it's been delivered from Egypt. It's been wandering in the wilderness now because God—they rebelled against God in the wilderness, and God said, "You didn't believe me. You didn't trust me. You're going to wander for forty years, and then I'm going to bring you into a beautiful and glorious promised land in Israel. And I'm going to take care of you. you are, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And I'm going to give you—I gave you instructions. I gave Moses instructions on the mountain. Oh, that you would just trust me and obey me." I will take care of you. Oh, Israel, the name Israel, was the name given to Jacob as, as a promise that God was going to continue the line of blessings that he first started with his grandfather Abraham. And he said, I make a promise with you. Here, Israel, here promised ones. Yahweh, that's where the word the Lord is Yahweh, which is a special name. It's the special name of the God who commits his love to his people Israel. Yahweh, our God. Yahweh is one. Literally, he's the only God. You're going to go out, you're going to be tempted in the wilderness to trust in other things. There is no other things that will satisfy you. There is no other things that are going to bring you security. The Lord Yahweh, the personal, caring, promising covenant-keeping, covenant-making, who met our fathers, the one who created the universe and upholds it together, the one who delivered us from Egypt, the one who heard their cries for mercy when they were in rebellion or in slavery. those who gave He's the one who gave us his law. He's the one who divided the sea, the one who fed us manna in the wilderness and meat in the wilderness, who brought water out from a rock, the one who delivered from the enemy, army by having Moses lift up his arms in the wilderness. You can read all these about these in Exodus. The one who came with them and showed his presence with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The one who promised to bring them into an abundant rich land and to remove wicked enemies who would be violent against them. The one who showed himself to their leader and provided that he would make a way to forgive their this God, he is the only God. Remember the commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. He alone is your God. Here, listen. This changes everything. The Lord is one. There is no other. He is the one. This is the only time other than in Exodus 34 where the phrase the Lord and the Lord are put together like this and that's when Moses was given this message from God and God said I want you to know my name now listen up because this is not just some ancient history about some deity or, or, or an early stage of God in the past but not for us today this is our God that we know through Jesus Christ our Lord God revealed himself to Moses when he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Psalm 115 the psalmist says, "Where some say, where's our God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And the idols of the earth, they're silver and gold. They, they're the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but do not hear. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses. They can't smell those gods. They have hands. They don't feel. Feet, but don't walk. They don't make a sound in their throats. Those to all who put their trust in these false gods. And this first verse, this first verse is an explosive reality of our great and glorious God that I pray that each one of you, young or old, whether you grew up in church or not, you would come and you would take this God so seriously. This is a God who is on one side absolutely holy. He will punish iniquity. He will take sin And he will punish all sin and all wrongdoing and all impurity. And he is loving and he's merciful and he brings grace and kindness and forgiveness. And so both of these things are a reality. And so he provided a way for this holiness to be taken care of and purity to be taken care of by providing a means of sacrifice in order to bring forgiveness and acceptance. Acceptance for this people to receive the love and the mercy. God said, I'm going to bless your socks off. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring you into a land. And people are going to look and say, who is their God? The way that they're abundantly taken care of. And God said he was going to do that for the people of Israel. And this is our God. And this God is revealed and brought to us now. This is the God that has come to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come in the flesh. Jesus has come near and he's brought himself to us. And I hope that we, all of us, as, well, most are adults in this room. Some of you are younger here. I'm glad you're here. I want you to hear this. God is better than any pastor could could communicate him to you. Better than any teacher could reveal truth to you. Better than any documentary shows that has all the music and sound effects and, uh, and visual effects could reveal to you. God is glorious. He made you. He made everything in this universe. And the good news is that everyone who comes to this God and bows the knee and says, though I am unworthy, I plead with you to forgive me and receive me based on what you have given to me in a perfect gift of Jesus dying on the cross for me. I, I come based on what he did for me. He will receive you and he will enter covenant with you forever. He will promise to never turn away from you but to do good for you. He, I want to invite you to always hear the fact that there is a great God and he is absolutely loving but he is absolutely holy. He will punish all wrongdoing either on the cross Take your sin on the cross or you will pay for it in hell someday. This is an explosive truth that must change everything in our lives. In fact, all of our days, and I, all of our days in reading this word should be, God, I want to know this ex- This God that should cha- shake up my life. This, there's only one God. I want to know you. Because this week I'm going to go into work and I need to know you. I need to go this week to leave my family. I need to know you. Help me not to grow cold to the things that I'm most familiar. God, you are new. Your grace is new every morning. Your mercies are new. Help me to know you in this God. So, verse 4 is people, people of God, Israel, and now to us, church, faith church, and Christians here, know that there is the Lord Jesus Christ who is offered to be. He is a a great and glorious Savior. He's making His church, and He's going to make you beautiful, and He promises to never let you go, but to take care of you. Look at His works and His ways and His goodness. But secondly, I want you to see the all-encompassing command. So it doesn't leave it at just a, a statement of faith. God, Yahweh, the one that made promise, He's one, and you need to, He's one. The implications are the all-encompassing command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 when the Jewish lawyers were coming to him, and Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment. So what does this mean? I I think all of you would say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love God, but what does that mean, Pastor? Well, you and I are called to love God. But love includes, yes, a growing affection. It, it includes a growing desire for God a, 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 so that someday we can, like the psalmist say, as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. There is none in heaven that I desire beside you. God, you you are my greatest treasure. But I, I believe it starts, and, and, and much of the growing of this continues as this idea of love in the Hebrew and the Bible, the Old Testament, was more than emotion, much more than emotion. It was, though it may include desires, it, it, it was a deep commitment to something. To love something in this sense is to have a deep commitment, and that is a deep commitment to this God you shall be committed to Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Everything about you now, and he says it in these three ways, your heart, your soul, and your might. I've read different commentaries, and I say, what is the difference between these three? Well, there's not real clear distinctions between all three of these. Maybe they're like overlapping circles. The, the big point is, you are to love him with everything. You are to be committed. Your whole life and resources is now belongs to God, the one who brought you into covenant. Think of it like marriage. He, he made a marriage with you. He made a promise. He said, I'm going to bring you into this, and when you're in my covenant, I'm going to take care of you, and now you have your side of the covenant. You shall love me. You shall be committed to me. You shall You shall respond to my love of initiating and taking this, Taking you in to be my people with all my heart probably has to do with both the mind as well as the deepest part of who you are that drives your decisions, drives everything you have, your very depths. That means to love God cannot be doing all these external things, but you really love what everybody else loves in the world. You just Your real passions are what your unbelieving neighbor loves just as much and they know it. They know that's your real deep desire. But he goes to church and he, in, in words and in certain actions. No, it means the deepest inner person when nobody's looking, this is who I am. Oh God, I want to know you. I don't know you perfectly. God, I realize I'm a, a needy sinner, but you have brought me to yourself. The idea of soul means the entire person, it broads it to the inner person, to the outer person, every part of who you are. And then this idea of love God with all your might probably has to do with loving God with all your resources. It means if you, you have physical strength, it's God's. You have economic and social strength, you've got money, you've got relationships, they're God's. You, everything you own, your tools, your livestock in the Old Testament, your house and the like, that's God's. And you look to know how you can show that he is an all- good, satisfying, powerful, great God who delivers me out of slavery and bondage, not out of Egypt, because we're not Israelites, but out of the slavery and bondage of our own sin to Jesus Christ. This command says, you must give everything to Jesus. You belong to me, God says. Your commitments, your plans, your skills, your family, your resources, your emotions, your joys, your future. You're my people. I own you. This is what Jesus when Peter said it, We gave everything to follow you, Jesus. Jesus knew that was the cost of discipleship to follow God. Is you're surrendering your own security, you're surrendering your own way, you're coming to Jesus and accepting him and taking Jesus' cross and following Jesus by faith. Jesus says, If you if you lose Lose, lose, lose everything no one who has left everything or brothers or sisters or mother or children for my sake in the gospel will not receive back a hundredfold in this lifetime and in the lifetime to come eternal life you see the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field Matthew thirteen, which a man found and covered up and then in joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. God is like this treasure, and we say, God, I want you, and nothing compares to you. I, All that I have, all that I am is yours. I want to ask you this. We, we can throw a light, cheap words. I love Jesus. I love God. In fact, you won't find that language actually much in the Bible. You don't find anyone in the Bible actually saying, I love the Lord. A few times in the Psalms, very few times, do God's people say that. I think it's because they're just really careful with their words because that's a bold statement. And it's we should strive to this, and I think we can grow to love God. But do you love God all your all? I don't think any of us can truthfully say yes in the fullest sense, but we can be growing in this, and we should be growing this, a commitment that says, God, you are my all. You're captivating my heart, and you're captivating my mind. You're captivating my life in some new ways. I'm going to die in 10, 20, 35 years. I don't know how long. You know, you made me for yourself. Does, does it appear... That you are from the inside out growing to love God with your all? Like Inside, there's really growing. You desire to be in God's word. You don't always do it, but you want to. You want to know His word and obey it. You want to know God. Say this again. The 30-30 challenge that we want to challenge you to is don't go to it just so you can say you did 30-30 or to check off a box or just be part of a fun church-wide thing. Do it in order to know this God, and in knowing Him to love Him. Do you know Him? Not, not, or love Him? Not, do you, not. I'm not asking. Do you just have increased good feelings about God? But are you growing in your satisfaction in God and God alone? Do your children, parents? Are any of you here, do your neighbors who are non-Christians, or they, you don't know if they're Christians, they don't go to church, or your co-workers, or kids, teens, if you're in this room, and you go to school, your classmates, do they see in you a commitment that impacts all of your life? They, they know that God is first for you, that Jesus is central in your life. Can you see we say, God is becoming everything to me. Now, in the next point, and this is the last point, I want to just give you three ways that this love for God is lived out. I said love is not just primarily emotion. It includes that, but it's a commitment towards action. Here are three ways of which are, are growing to show whether you really love God. Three actions that follow from the first two points. Okay? First, of, I'm, just think of it this way. You, when you love God, you're going to love God. You're going to listen to God. You're going to live for God. And you're going to share God. First of all, we listen. Hear, O Israel, listen carefully. You start reading through Deuteronomy. If you read through the law. You read the word of God. It says, will you listen attentively and pay careful attention and to listen? We are to listen carefully to God if we want to grow to love him. Don't say you love God, but you don't listen to his word. Don't say you love God, but you don't like what he told you. How would you think, spouse, what would you think if every time your spouse wanted to talk to you, you just put your hands in your ears and walk the other way? That would be at first really weird and awkward, and then it would end in some real problems. Or just... More subtly, every time she wanted to talk seriously or just talk in a general, you, you just go the other way. You see, those that love God listen. They listen to God's word. They listen and they're attentive in order so that, I want to say this, they listen, they committed, their committed love listens to God and strives to remember what God has said, what, who God is. Our hearts can so drift off into so many other things and we forget God's goodness as we get sucked into the competing worldviews and the competing idols of this world that sucks us in and goes, maybe that is satisfying. Maybe th- money can, can do it for me or looks or just appreciation even that I get from social media on Facebook or whatever it is. Oh, we need to listen to God's word and we need to remember who God is. We must remember, and we must help our children remember. We, we commit in all of this as parents, as adults, and all of us, is to listen carefully to God's word. There was a reason why God, when he set up at the end of Deuteronomy, he said, you're going to have kings, but when you have kings, they're going to sit on the throne, and here are their, this is the first duty of a king. He is to sit on the throne, and he shall write a book of the copy of the law. And he should write that law down. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear me by keeping the words of my law and statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. And he drifts In Deuteronomy 31, as the people gather at the end of Deuteronomy, All it says that all they all appeared before the Lord, and they assembled men and women and children and everyone, that they could hear the law. We are, if we love God, we're going to go to God and love listening to his word. We're going to hear it in preaching, we're going to hear it in teaching, we're going to hear it in our family, in our homes, we're going to read it on ourselves, but we're going to listen to God's word. The second thing is we live God's word, or we live committed love, lives for God and begins on the inside. To love God means you live for God. It means to be gripped by the explosive reality that I shared in verse 4, that God is he is our God and there is no other. So that means you need to live. We all live for something. And what we live for ultimately reveals what our God is. Let me just say that again. We all live for something. Every one of us lives for something. Sometimes it's not all unified. We live for this for a while. We live for that. Often it's ourselves. Or or we, we find ourselves finding that I'm going to live for pleasure because pleasure brings me well most pleasure. I want pleasure. I'm or we live for something close to that. It's probably in the same category, comfort. Or I, I live for, I want security. I want to feel secure. I feel for that sense. Or I want significance and appreciation by others. And so we grasp after those things and how we do our jobs or how we pursue our vacations. To love God is to be gripped by the, this God and to live for him. Living for God remembers that God alone is our God and you depend on him and you have no substitutes. Our faith and our trust must be in God. Where is your faith? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? This passage says you shall love God with your all. This passage says you should be careful to do with all that he has commanded. This passage, if you read at the beginning verses of Deuteronomy, you shall fear the Lord your God. Faith, church, to live for something else? Do you live for your vacation? Do you live for your work? Do you live for a sports team? Do you live for a hobby? For approval or pleasure? For comfort? For the next day or family or grandkids or gaming? Do you live for sex or food or drink? God made us to live for him. And Paul the Apostle learned this reality where he wrote in Philippians, to live is Christ I, I, I want Christ to grip me so that if, if I live I, I live for Christ he's changed my life and if I die it's gain because I get to be with Christ how do we live this in a successful way how man this is hard that means dying to myself die to living to self die to live to God well, first of all, how does this happen? It's not going to happen unless you're gripped by this great God. And so you must be born anew. You have not been born again by God. You have not been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will not be able to live for God because this kind of living for God is not a works of trying to get saved. It is a result of the Spirit have already come in your life and you had repented of your sins and you know the loving grace of God. God's call for all of us is to live for Him with all our hearts, knowing that He laid down all for us He gave Himself for us. Living for God is an example of of this committed love, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and your all your might, I want to I want to read this so we get close to closing. I read this this week from a, a book on family worship. A child sees behind all the religious garb of his parents and finds that it, what is really precious to them. He sees patterns of heart which lure them away toward the pursuit of wealth, leisure, athletics entertainment, television, shopping, and religious business, a child can easily see when these things are more exciting to his parents than devotion to Jesus Christ. When this proves to be the case, a child will embrace these same affections to the detriment of his own soul. However, when children see parents who pant after God, meaning they who are constantly pouring over the scriptures and going after God parents they go to God in everything with prayer about everything parents who have a, a proper balance between the enjoyment of legitimate recreation and seeking to conform to everything that would bring glory to God their children can be expected to adopt the same balance whatever or whoever is precious to you the same will be precious to your children we need to be an example in our lives and priorities and choices. Which leads me to the last point. Committed love shares this love, this God with family and the world. This is another sermon, but if you meditate on verses 7, 8, and 9, first, first of all in 6, he says, by the way now, adults, this should be on your heart, verse 6. God's law needs to be in your heart. You should take it out deep, and then you need to share it with your children. Verse 7, verse 7, he says, you shall inscribe it. Literally, it says, teach these things diligently to your children. But literally, you could say, inscribe it into the hearts of your children. You should repeat it. You should over and over again, take the great and glorious God that you really believe in, you are showing through your life, and say, this God is good. This God is great the passage continues on and says you're to do things strange things like that at first you say what does that really mean you must mean this figuratively and he primarily does you shall do things like when you bind them as a sign on your hand these, this reminder may, does that mean a tattoo does, does that does that mean just some what are you going to do and you put it on the forehead as a reminder that you're gods and he, god is alone your god and then he says you shall Write it on the doorpost of your house and on your gates so that all who will see you know you're a people of Yahweh. You're a people of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think I just want to say, if, if we love God, we're sh- we, we share God. We can't help but share God over and over again in the culture of our lives and our families to our children. might be who we work with or our neighbors people who would see us and interact and say surely they are of God they love a God and he, he sure seems all satisfying to, that, to them now I just want to conclude by calling you to this great God I, I, you, have a, you have an insert parents especially families it says family, families to the glory of God I encourage you to take those eight points. I, I'm not going to take the time right now to go through them. May in another time, another message. But I wrote those down this week, and I really encourage you to ponder and meditate on those eight points. What does it mean for us to share diligently with our children? I have some books up here that I recommend that Jason Moles brought in that are really good resources for family devotions. Here's another one, long story short. But I encourage you, take a look at those but to meditate on the heartbeat of these eight points and I'll explain them in another time but I want you to to end with this I don't think there's anybody in this room who will say Pastor Daniel you're wrong we shouldn't love God with all our heart, soul and might how do we do it? it's so hard well God is such a God who makes a covenant with us and then we have our side of the covenants, but there's another side of the covenants. There's a mediator of a covenant, and Hebrew says that Jesus is the mediator of the covenant. What Jesus does is he takes God and he takes us, brings us together, and we have all these. De- we have this, this demand. We need to love God with all our hearts. We need to follow Him. We need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to take up our cross and follow him and, and delight in him more than anything. And we go, but I can't on my own. And he says, I give you a new heart. I give you, the promises. i give you a new heart. And I give you a new way. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And we come in here and we say, oh God, would you please rescue my old heart? Take out a, my old heart. Maybe you did that when I was, you did that when I was saved, but I, I want you to, to a new do this again in my life. Give you the help to love you, to listen to you, to live for you, to share you with you, share you to others of your goodness. And, oh, God, thank you that you provided Jesus Christ. One, one last time. You're here, and you have not received the merciful grace of God. And you're not sure if you've been saved today. You can look to him. You can confess your sins and believe. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for you, and he will receive you. He'll make you God's child, and he will not leave you, but will be your God. Let's pray, Father.